Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Joe Biden won the presidential election by bringing in a wide range of voters. Democrats, Republicans, independents, progressives, moderates, conservatives, young, old, urban, suburban, rural, gay, straight, transgender, white, Latino, Asian, Native American. And especially for those moments where this campaign was at its lowest ebb, the African-American community stood up again for me. But we want to take a deeper dive into the demographics because who voted, how they voted, and why is fascinating. And it's full of surprises. You'd think the scenes of kids in cages at the U.S.-Mexican border or President Trump's so-called Muslim ban would mean that Biden had a lock on Latinx and Muslim voters. That simply wasn't the case. So for a deeper dive into voter demographics, we pulled in Charles Stewart. He's a professor of political science and the founding director of the MIT Election Data and Science Lab. He's also the co-director of the Stanford MIT Healthy Elections Project and the Caltech MIT Voting Technology Project. Charles, welcome to Reset. Great to be here. It's great to have you. All right, so big picture. How many voted and how does the number compare to previous elections? Well, it looks like that once all the votes are tallied, there's going to be something like 150 million um, nationwide, which is um, almost exactly two-thirds, 67% of the voting eligible population Mm. in the U.S. And to put that in context, we haven't had turnout at that rate since the election of 1900. And, of course, back in 1900, women didn't have the franchise, 18-year-olds didn't have the franchise, um, and a bunch of the country, African-Americans, were effectively kept from the polls. Mm-hmm. So this is quite something um, in terms of voting over the last century. And even for more context, when there's a Chicago uh, municipal election, I think the, it's 30 percent, and they're like, wow, that's turnout. So the <laughs> exactly. idea that we're talking about two-thirds, that's amazing. So did you identify any demographic shifts that stood out to you? With all this talk about kind of churning in the electorate and, and, and all the rest, at the end of the day, the demographic patterns look pretty similar to 2016. I mean, there are some big differences that grab your eye, but you know they're pretty subtle, although they might have a special consequence in some of the swing states. Um, for instance, you know, one of the things that's been noted is that there is an uptick in support for Biden in like small towns around in the, in the suburbs in the Midwest. And of course, there's a surprising up surge in support for Trump among Hispanic voters, especially in South Florida and in, and in Texas. But that's the sort of thing that we're seeing in terms of the changes. They're small, unexpected, and sometimes in very specific places. Yeah. When we talk about this election, and it'll be talked about for years to come, but it really is almost a cult of personality. But the issues drove voters in 2020. What were the issues that people, was it COVID-19? Well, I mean, it depends on what party and who your candidate was. You know, there were intense feelings about Donald Trump. And I think that, you know, the evidence is that that kind of drove turnout and a lot of the vote choice. Um, But if you look at Biden and Trump voters, when they mentioned issues, they mentioned different things. Two-thirds of the Biden voters said that, you know, issues like racial equality and um, either coronavirus or health care were their top issues, whereas, you know, Trump voters were much more likely to mention the economy and crime. None of this is surprising, given you know what the two candidates were saying um, over the last six months. Um, but it does suggest you know kind of a very different basis 
for, say, a Biden presidency than for a reelected, a second term for Donald Trump. You know, when we when we think about those issues, whether it's the economy, COVID, uh, race, climate change, do voters go out for politics? Do they, do they go to the polls for, say, control of the Senate or the Supreme Court, as we saw was a big issue leading up to the election? Are those things that move people to vote and, and you see it in your data? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, this is actually the $64,000 question in political science, which is why anyone would go vote in the first place, <laughs> um, since in a very literal sense, um, one vote almost never ne- never counts. Um, and so the big, you know, the big issue or the big explanation for why people turn out to vote usually is something around um, personal identity. Um, the same reason why, you know, people go to Cubs games or Red, or Red Sox games. Um, they have a team, they want to root for it, and they'll go and support it in a kind of a low-cost activity once every two or four years. And so when you, you know, get an intense election like this one, where it looks like, you know, the two teams are locked in a kind of intense battle, then, you know, that's going to goose the supporters of those two teams to turn out to vote, um, again, not always so much driven by the issues, although the voters will articulate at issues if you ask them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's really one for the team. And you can see that in, in some ways in how Republican voters have changed over the, even the last four years in terms of the issues that they talk about. Those are the issues that Donald Trump has been talking about. And I think we understand that better realizing that voters are listening to the leaders, basically going along with what their team's leaders say are the top issues mm-hmm. and the right ways to, to respond to those issues. Right. Here in, in Illinois, we have collar counties outside of Cook County and Chicago, DuPage County, Lake County, McHenry County, those places. But DuPage County has always been a red county. Like it's, it's just always been people. Uh, it's like the power in the state of Illinois. And this year it went blue. It's the second mm-hmm. cycle it's done that. Now, that's a lot of Chicago suburbs. There's big suburbs like Naperville and Aurora and other places like that. It, it, does that follow the trend, the national trend that the, that the suburbs went uh, blue as opposed to what they usually do, which is red? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, the other side of that, by the way, from what I can tell is Cook County, I mean, it, it still is blue, but it's less blue than it was four years ago. And so what we're seeing in much, especially in much of the upper Midwest, is absolutely the suburbs were the place where the largest increase in vote for Biden versus Clinton happened, somewhat in kind of maybe some of the smaller cities um, in, in that region which is actually in stark contrast with kind of a stasis among the really big cities, um, like in Chicago, Detroit, et cetera, um, where Biden, you know, held his own, um, if anything. But, yeah, no, the, the suburbs are certainly moving in a democratic direction, which is leading to this very stark sorting along this rural-urban divide. The closer you are to a densely settled place, the more likely you are to be a Democrat. And now that's even um, being applied to the suburbs, which have been traditionally Republican strongholds. Yeah, it's fascinating, especially in this area, because you, I, it's, it's you know, somebody who's paid attention to politics, you would never think that would be the case, but uh, especially exactly. in this area. Uh, Charles, one of the other things, too, that, that plays out here is obviously the mail-in ballot. And we've heard all about this, and, and we've heard, you know, obviously ad nauseum right now about lawsuits and fraud and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, voting this way in 2020 was a necessity. Does it mm-hmm. fundamentally change the way we vote in the future? At the risk of sounding mealy-mouthed, I have to say yes and no. Um, it's kind of somewhere in the middle, by which I mean that there were a lot of voters who were voting by mail because of pandemic concerns. And it's also the case that a lot of states 
passed laws or promulgated regulations that um, were sunsetted. And so legislatures are going to have to go back and um, permanently change laws if some of this voting by mail is going to be permanent. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that as we dive into the details of voting by mail, even people who've been supporting the vote by mail movement are going to realize that if a state wants to make widespread vote by mail a thing for the future, then they're going to have to really think carefully about the logistics of running big vote-by-mail operations when you do it all the time, as opposed to do it under these conditions in which everybody's kind of pulling together, or at least enough people are pulling together to make the system work. I don't think that what we did in many parts around the country um, would be sustainable in the long term, just because it did rely on so many special provisions in law, so many people coming out, you know, to volunteer to poll work, so many companies donating arenas and empty big buildings to count absentee ballots, things like that. And so we're going to sort this thing after this election to see really where we fall down. But, you know, voters in many places have taken a bite of the apple, and many of them like it. And so we'll be somewhere above where we were in 2016, my guess, in the future, but probably not where we ended up in 2020. Charles, you know, another big issue that played out was just this idea of how diverse this country is Uh, and the language about how different groups identify has also become pretty refined, whether you're talking about racial identity, gender identity, what have you. Uh, Did you and your team, did you have to adapt or prepare differently for the data that comes out of the election cycle to capture some of the changes we're talking about, that, that the way that people identify? There's two ways you can think about that. I mean, I think the pollsters who are trying to understand the, you know, the contours of the electorate, what we're talking about here, it may be that the sorts of questions that we ask in the future um, are, are different. I mean, by and large, the exit polls, you know, the questions that were asked this time were pretty much the questions that were asked in 2016, which is good in many ways because we can follow um, change over time. Um, so that's one way to think about it. You know, um, the other way to think about the answer to that question is that regardless of identities um, and how those move, eventually the most important identity right now is partisanship. I like to say that, you know, that, that political party is a powerful drug. And um, once you've decided you're on one in one team or the other, then that drives um, how you vote. And so, you know, we've been tracking partisan identification, and that helps you know, as you go into an election to kind of kind of settle on expectations about what might might mm-hmm. turn out. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we need to rethink this after this election, but it is kind of shocking um, how similar the 2016, 2020 was. When you think about polls and, and, and giving a preview of what, which way states are going to vote or which way people are going to vote, how can you change it up and, and change that industry to make it more accurate or at least more responsible? Well, you know, there's a couple of ways. And one, actually, the first thing I would say is it might, we might want to think, rethink the audience side of this. Because, I, you know, um, what's, what's really happened over the last 10 years is that dozens of companies have gotten into the polling business in order to feed this insatiable appetite for the horse race. And, you know, we might want to rethink about why we need so many, so many companies feeding this horse race fix that we have to have. You know, it's valuable to get a, get a reading of the horse race from time to time. But I think, and I think this is sort of the political scientist in me coming out, what most political scientists would say, is that the value of the polls is not the horse race. The value of the polls is that it helps you 
understand these different groups in society that we've been talking about and how they look at politics. So in some ways, it doesn't it's not all that important to know that Biden's up three points or six points. I mean, there's some importance in that. But really, I think what's important is that we know that um, you know Hispanics are, think, are, are going one way and African-American men are going another way and that people who think about COVID are, you know, have these sorts of concerns and they're doing these sorts of political things. And that's the real value of polls, because that's the thing you can't get by people going to the ballot box. So the horse race is a way of setting expectations. But I think you know, we're coming to a realization that there's a lot of reasons why the horse race in the pre- presidential year may be biased in such a way that Democrats are more likely to respond to those polls. What's less problematic are these comparisons across groups, which appear to be pretty, pretty solid. Charles Stewart is a professor of political science and the founding director of the MIT Election Data and Science Lab. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great day. And that's today's Reset. I know you like what you're hearing, so please take a minute and leave us a rating and a quick review, just a few words. It really helps other people find us. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you right back here tomorrow for our Week in Review. This is Reset from WBEZ Chicago. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.